1950s. A simpler time when teenagers were all psychopathic gang members. Parents didn't love you unless you played football. And kids hunted dead bodies in hopes of getting famous. That's right, we finally watched Stand By Me. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, a podcast where we take a look at slightly older movies that may have been sitting around in your rental queue for a while that you just have never gotten to. Today, we're taking a look at the 1986 classic Stand By Me. I'm Evan Toller-Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Krista Shane. Um, So, have either of you missed this movie? No, this is another one of those, I have to say, uh, being the slightly older one, I watched it in the theater when it came out. So I'll have a lot to say about my experience then and then rewatching it now uh, a lot later. Uh, it, it was a very interesting experience to kind of contrast my experience at the time. I watched it uh, with a friend of mine in the theaters when it came out and had a really, really strong memory of it. And uh, and I was quite keen to watch it again. have not watched it since. Yeah, I, I, I would have seen it on... Uh, probably Betamax was the era uh, before VHS took over. Uh, I was probably, uh, yeah, I know uh, I, that was not my choice because I was a child, but um, yeah, I would have seen it around 10 years old. It would have been uh, like a great adventure movie for me at the time, you know, certainly has a sense of nostalgia. So it's interesting to go back and watch it, uh, which makes, makes me beg the question because Evan, you're born the same year as I am. How did you miss this? So, um, that is a really good question. Uh, I grew up really rural. Um, as you two know, I grew up in a, outside of a town that had one movie theater with one screen in it. I didn't have cable. So I feel like this one kind of got lost in the cracks insofar as like my parents probably didn't want me to take, or didn't want to take me to the movie. Um, when I was, uh, I think I would have just turned seven or so when this, uh, when this movie came out, it also opened the same time as Transformers, the movie, which I probably was much more excited to see and do remember seeing in theaters. Uh, and then it wasn't one of those movies that like, Oh, it's on TBS. So I'm going to watch it because we had CBC. And that's basically it. So unless my folks were going to rent it for me, it just never, it never kind of entered the equation for me. So it's, it's gone missed all this time, weirdly enough. So <laughs> just yeah. like, just like the body of the Brower kid, um, oh, the poor Brower kid. Uh, all right. So maybe before we, uh, get too into what we think of it and, um, you know, our, our kind of thoughts on how this movie played out watching it again as grownups, uh, or for a first time as grownups, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the movie and, um, you know, how it came to be? Yeah. I mean, to, to give a little bit of context to this film. So this is based on the Stephen King short story, the body, um, and I think that this, in fact, was the first theatrical adaptation that of any of Stephen King's works that he was kind of happy with the way it turned out. It's also like, so Rob Reiner directs this, uh, and it is the first in an absolutely insane run of movies for him. So he had done, I think, two features before this. Um, uh, sp- this is Spinal Tap being 
uh, being a, a, a pretty damn notable one. And then uh, like a, a romantic comedy with John Cusack that that uh, I don't think has stood the test of time. But then Stand By Me, 1986, The Princess Bride, 1987, When Harry Met Sally, 1989, Misery, 1990, A Few Good Men, 1992. That is a crazy streak. Which, you know, cements him as one of the, like, truly great directors in Hollywood in that sort of late 80s, early 90s. This is a real launch pad for him. And, I mean, for a lot of the other folks in the movie, too, who, um, you know, we're going to talk about uh, in a minute. But, yeah, this is definitely uh, a real turning point for for Rob Reiner and Rob Reiner's uh, career. And it wasn't just Rob Reiner. I mean, um, Corey Feldman... Kiefer Sutherland, John Cusack, uh, River Phoenix, like a whole bunch of actors come out of this, wind up with a whole new like springboard into the next stage of their careers. Um, you know, I think a, a big part of that just comes out of the the success of this movie. Like this, this ran uh, as the top movie in the box office for the first few weeks in September, shortly after it came out. It grossed 52 million. That's a whole boat more boatload more than the 8 million it cost to make it. Um, and, you know, it's it, it got nominated for some stuff that it didn't win, uh, but it definitely came out ahead on the reviews. Like universal praise of this movie, coming of age story, amazing ensemble performance. Um, you know, it still has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and it's definitely recognized as one of those like great coming of age stories. So for all of us who have been watching this movie, um, Michael, uh, I mean, for you watching it again, what were your thoughts? So, I'm glad I watched it again. I can't say I cared for it, uh, the entire thing. Uh, and, and I can't wait for us to get into conversation about why. Yeah, I think, I think I'm as a rewatcher in the same boat as you of, I think it's a good movie, but you know, some, uh, questions there, but, uh, I think really the focus for us right now needs to be Evan. Is this a movie that should have stayed missed for you? Or is this a, a thing that you're happy to have seen? No, I'm, I'm very, very happy to have seen this movie. Uh, I, I feel like this movie has been, uh, or the lack of seeing this movie has been hanging over me for most of my life. And now that I've seen it, I can check that off and move forward to all of the other movies I've never seen. But I'm really glad that I saw this movie. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think there you go. The The time to get into it is upon us. So let's take a quick break. Uh, and on the other side of the break, we'll break it down about what we thought about this movie. Hey, you're back. Uh, warning, spoilers ahead. Uh, we are going to be talking in detail all about Stand By Me. And if you haven't seen it and don't want to know all the ins and outs, then uh, please run away now. Otherwise, uh, we're going to get into it. And before we do, maybe it makes sense to you know tell you a little bit about what this movie is about. So uh, this movie is basically told by a writer. He finds out that one of his childhood friends died and he's kind of remembering this story about this journey he went on with his three childhood friends uh, where they kind of became this uh, 
closer than ever group as they have this kind of defining event of their childhoods, uh, looking for this dead body of this missing kid. Uh, and it's kind of this, this, this transition point for them from being kids into the first steps into adulthood. Um, and so speaking about being kids, I think one of the interesting points for us to start here is this is a movie with kids and kid actors. And I think one of the fascinating things is like, let's talk about the casting of these kids because they're pretty spot on for who they play. Yeah. They're, they're really, really well cast. And, you know, so for, for, for the audience at home, uh, I'm a, I'm a TV writer. I work in the kids space. Uh, I often have to cast kids and it's hard. It's hard to find the right amount of charm and acting ability and uh, willingness to take direction and that sort of je ne sais quoi uh for for you know are, are, do they have that that just whatever it is that makes them compelling to watch on screen um and all of these kids have it all these kids have it in buckets well and I, I think that that partly goes back to the the choices like rob reiner was pretty explicit like i'm picking these kids not because they're just brilliant actors but because these kids are the kid in the movie and i think it, it, it's these um, really cool choices that he's making because like, you know, Will Wheaton is the nerdy, uncomfortable kid, which I mean, if you've seen other Will Wheaton stuff, Will Wheaton is that guy, right? Uh, he, he is a big nerd. Yeah. Big nerd. Uh, and you know, River Phoenix originally auditioned for the part of Gordy. That's the part Will Wheaton played. And he was just too charismatic and charming and whatever. That's why he becomes Chris, the leader of the gang, you know, Corey Feldman, who, um, you know, at this point in his career actually had some success. He's probably the biggest of all the, all the kid actors in this movie uh is coming in with this like chip on his shoulder because he's got this messed up relationship with his parents just like his character and then you've got jerry o'connell coming in as like you know the the chubby kid who's uh full of laughs and light and entertainment and like that's exactly his character in the movie so it's fascinating that he's not picking them because they're good actors but because it's just going to be easier for them to play that part because they're already kind of that kid yeah and and those parts also are really like you, you see them it's almost like a pattern that recurs in the stephen king movies it's almost like uh the same as the the you were talking about the coming of age movies later like breakfast club they need certain archetypes they need certain characters um that fill a particular role in the story and in this one it's also interesting i hope we're going to talk about this later but they also have almost a their corresponding pairing with their brothers with uh, other friends with the parent relationships so it's not just that they work in isolation for that but they also uh, gordy with his older brother is a perfect match and how that kind of tells the story with the parents and the and the whole that that's been created in that family um so it i think that that casting is it's genius getting them all to work so well together i, I was very impressed with that well and that's that's one of the interesting things too um rob reiner to get them to that point uh, basically said, well, before we start shooting anything, before we start doing anything serious, we're just going to put these kids into like a two week theater camp kind of series of activities. So they're just playing acting games together. They're getting more comfortable. They're getting them to be friends. 
so that, you know, they can more easily pull off this kind of friendship on screen that they're supposed to be, you know, best buds. Uh, so he was setting the stage for this um, as they're coming on set and like, all right, cool. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to hang out for a couple of weeks doing fun stuff together so that when they did start rolling, you know, there you go. You're ready. You got these these kids who are kind of more naturally bonded at this point. That's really cool. I wonder if that goes back to the fact that Reiner came up as an actor, because, uh, you know, let's remember that he was uh, meathead on All in the Family. Yep. I mean, he's also like, I mean, he grew up around sets. His dad's Carl Reiner, yep. who, you know, is the creator, showrunner of Dick Van Dyke's show, Mary Tyler Moore, like, you know, so there's 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 that, which... I wonder how much that played into it. Also, like his first feature was Spinal Tap. And so you, you, you know, Christopher Guest is known all over for his sort of like semi-scripted improv-y kind of, kind of shoots. So that I, I think is, is, it's interesting to take a look at, at him coming in with that kind of lens yeah, I- and, and bringing that to the, to these kids. I think that that's right, Evan. I think I think there's um, uh, some stuff from behind the scenes or whatever where they talk about him actually standing behind the camera at points, acting the scene out for the kids to be like, "This is what I need from you. Like this is this is the way you're supposed to be feeling." Which I think, especially when you're acting, uh, you know, you're a twelve year old actor. Maybe some of these emotions are things that you have but can't necessarily like tap into, uh, you know, right off, off the bat. And so you've got Rob Reiner, who is an experienced actor and to your point has this Hollywood pedigree behind him, kind of showing you the way, which I think is a, a big part of coaxing the, the performance out of these kids. And why don't we actually like talk about that? Because the performance of the kids is everything in this movie. If, if these mm-hmm. kids don't pay off, then this movie doesn't work. Right. So w- w- like what works about the performance here? You know, I, I think that, uh, the the ensemble quality of it and the fact that the performances you know across the board are pretty freaking strong um is one of the reasons why this movie has has stood the test of time um it just it it feels if it feels like like real kids doing a thing i i think that I think that's exactly right. Like the, they are just the right amount of silly and irreverent with each other and how they just kind of like, so it, it seems so natural, even though it's a little bit exaggerated, right? Like how they, they joke with each other. It's so natural to have four kids like that do that. So I think that part is brilliant. It's very quickly they establish the sort of the, the friendships. But I also think that the the adults have a really interesting role in this movie because they're such... They're terrible? Yeah, they, there's a... I don't know. It was almost like a sadness about the, the adults that then contrasts these kids. Uh, I thought it was just fascinating to watch uh, all this these performances. I, I will say that um, for me, I think a lot of the time those performances from the kids are great. And it's, it's interesting because I actually found River Phoenix to be the real standout for me amongst them where I believed him a hundred percent of the time. I thought he was great. He could hit the right emotional notes and they seemed believable. I don't having like rewatching this movie. Um, I don't always buy the other kids all the time. And so I found there was points where I'm like, 
they're great. They're adorable. They're real kids. They're like hanging out like real buddies do. They're on this weird quest. And then there's times where I'm like, ooh, that is a kid trying to portray a real emotion, but doesn't know how to get all the way there. And that's okay. But you know, there's just moments where uh, like Teddy's character doesn't quite get there or Will Wheaton trying to step in when the kids are fighting. He's like, okay, okay, stop fighting. You're like, this is a little not quite there for me. And I think rewatching it, I noticed those things a little bit more than maybe I did on my first viewing. Mm, I found that, that, uh, you know, maybe things fell a little flat with me actually for, for river Phoenix. Um, and, and I know that's a little bit sacrilege because of, of the sort of the cult status that he has, um, kind of grown to because of his untimely um, early death. But, and, and maybe it's because he was saddled with such a huge amount of kind of the emotional heavy lifting in, a, you know, the character with sort of the most dynamic range. Um, and, and that scene with the monologue about um, the, the teacher taking the lunch money, just it, it's long. It's and there's a there's a lot to carry there. And uh, but for me, the the interesting thing is that for me, yeah, because it and it's interesting, right? Like not growing up in, in this country, it's easier for me to believe this as a coming of age story than something like Breakfast Club, because uh, this to me is so set in the, in, in the past. And mm. so it's set in the past. It's easier to kind of say that's actually really similar. I can I can transport myself easier um that's kind of like thing number one and thing number two is because i bought into the idea that they're they're a little bit caricatures like they're they're so specific there's this character it's like playing D. you have the barbarian you have the um wizard you have like so i, I expected them to be that and that's why i thought they did that really well compared to if you saw something set in modern time and it's supposed to be a drama i think it would be much uh, harsher on you know it. okay so that's actually a really interesting point michael because this film is told in a flashback and you can't help but uh <laughs> you can't help but sense that the writer who is telling the story of this incredibly seminal moment in his and his friends' lives is viewing it through an incredible uh, lens of nostalgia. Oh, yeah. Like so, nostalgia with nostalgia icing and nostalgia syrup on yeah, top. Nostalgia yeah, cream in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Like it is. So I wonder then if maybe all of that is a very deliberate choice in kind of the way that it is set up you know, these characters are kind of archetypes because you've got a writer viewing things back, literally writing the story of what happened, but also even within the, 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 the flashback, the extended flashback that is the movie itself, there are cutaways to stories that are being told there's cutaways to things that the characters themselves aren't present for the kind of B stories with the, the, uh, uh, insane bully characters. Um, 
you know, all of this maybe adds up to kind of exactly what you're talking about, Michael, is, is that they're archetypes, but they are archetypes for a reason. Yeah, and and that's why that's why I gravitate towards the that the evil older gang because they're almost like a, a a mirror image. They're on a journey as well. So like we very quickly set out on a on a journey for the the four protagonists, and it's sort of like a hero's journey, and they're up, they're on a quest. And then there's this mirror image, the darker one of the other four, and it's not really clear what they're doing because they're driven by anger and fear. And they don't have like a, a bond aside from that. And whereas the first group, they're looking to sort of do some, at least some of them, something different and get out of this town. The other ones seem almost hell bent on just, you know, staying there forever um, and flaming out. So I, I think that they, they're needed. They, they go very well together. I, I think that's part of the, the writing that, uh, for, for me, that kind of like teenagers are serial killers parents don't give a shit and kids are awesome adventurers is uh, a little bit of the reflection of like, it's supposed to be um, a memory of what a 12 year old felt like. Right. And I think that for me is part of the, what feels good about this kind of story uh, and the way these characters are written is that it does feel like this is a thing that a 12 year old would think was awesome. Right. And like, you know, the stories of like the, the, the junkyard and the dog there and like, you know, chopper sick balls is the the type of thing where I'm like, yes, that is the thing that I would have thought of as a 12 year old as like, not only is this scary, but also kind of awesome. And we need to do this. And so I don't know, does that keep true for you guys that the, the, the writing, the dialogue, the interactions that these kids have feels genuine for what you think a 12 year old would be like, or at least in, you know, a movie? Yeah, no, it felt it felt very genuine to me. And I think that was part of the joy of watching this is that it does feel um, kind of, magical isn't the right word, but that's sort of like it's got that tint of uh, of innocence and nostalgia and melancholy and all of those things that mix together to make that kind of very 80s Amblin-esque, you know, like magic, whatever that magic sauce is for things like, you know, that make the Goonies and Stand By Me and E.T. and all of these kind of like kids adventure movies have such resonant power with us today. I think it's one of those things for me about this movie too, and the writing or the story itself is this, and this kind of takes a little bit of, um, a, a middle ground, I'll call it between say the breakfast club or Ferris Bueller, which is very teenager. Uh, and like the Goonies, which is maybe a little younger than this going on a wacky adventure. This is kind of that bridging point. And I think that's exactly where you get like the joy, but also the melancholy of kind of, you know, the characters recognize it in the story, right? we're about to be grownups and like things are going to change and we don't necessarily want that, but that's what's happening. Right. And that's why I think it, it, it does have this unique spot is it bridges these two grounds of little kid versus teenager. And it's right in that middle point. And why I think the story is so effective. Yeah. And I think that's probably why it left a memory with me because I, I was, 14 or maybe 15 at the time. And it kind of hit me right at that spot. And I felt like I was 
part of the same thing. It's almost like the type of adventure that I would have wanted to be part of, right? Like you, you feel that it's easier to believe at that point, and maybe then why it's kind of held that nostalgic spot, and why I don't hold it up to the same, maybe the some of the same critical things as I would with, with something else. Uh, because at the end of it, it's not like a terribly deep story. Like it's pretty basic. They set out. They have a couple of key points, like you mentioned, the junkyard, and there's a big bridge sequence, and then there's a, a conversation, and then a, a showdown, and the movie ends. Like, that's it. It's not much to it, yet th- there's something more to it than just those individual parts. Well, you know, I mean, to your point, Michael, uh, from earlier, like, when you said it's, this is kind of, you know, a hero's quest, a hero's journey, no, this is a hundred percent, you know, as as... You know, it may not be super deep when you kind of like look at the plot points that kind of take it along, but structurally, this thing is the full on like Joseph Campbell hero's journey. Like the the hero leaves town, goes into the wild, into the wild and into the woods, finds the thing that they need to find get get a, a, a an emotional um uh you know kind of thing that they needed rather than what their original goal was and they come back to the town changed with what with the knowledge of that and you know so like structurally like it's 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 a very well um in terms of 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 the classic story that resonates that we're used to for you know classic hollywood films like this follows it kind of perfectly in a lot of ways i think i think that's right yeah i think it it does and i think it's i mean partly recognition you know it's written by stephen king he's not a slouch of a writer like this is already a well-crafted story and the, the movie follows that story very closely. I think one of the credits, um, so, uh, Randall Gideon and uh, Bruce Evans, who were the um, wrote the screenplay for this, adapted it very closely. And then what, when Rob Reiner came on board, he wasn't sp- supposed to be the original director, but um, he came in. One of the first things he did was he actually changed the perspective from being a little bit more all four boys to being very um, Gordy centric and making Gordy kind of the anchor of this story. Uh, and, you know, Gordy is the one who's kind of the one who's feeling um you know, a little on the outside with his parents after the death of his brother. And he's the thoughtful, uh, you know, intellectual one as opposed to the football player. I think he he made this very intentional choice to to anchor it on Gordy and rewrite the screenplay or have parts of it rewritten so that it was anchored on Gordy. So I think that you had a much clearer hero's journey than you might have had with some of those other kids, right? Like Teddy and um, uh, Vern aren't going on necessarily the same yeah. journey at all. They're just a lot. They are, uh, you know, uh, Sam to Frodo, right? Like they're not necessarily the big driver here. They're along for the ride. They might have some stuff along the way, but 
Not yeah. So they are the they are the Pippi and Marin, right? <laughs> yeah. Pippin and uh, and Mary, right? Because uh, Chris is really the the Sam in this. If we're if we're sure. trying yeah, to that's do right. Lord of that's the Rings right. analogy, yeah, you, that's bang on. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. And there's four of them, and, and they're short. Yeah, and exactly. let's keep going. The the teenagers yeah, are orcs. We could do this all day. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think. Oh my God, is that our big takeaway? Is that our hot take that Stand by Me is actually Lord of the Rings? I think we need to make this a permanent segment where we say if this was another movie what would this movie be <laughs> uh no but i think i think that's right right like i think i think um i i think part of the success and, and maybe this is a question to both of you for this movie is by anchoring it on gordy and the person who has this ex- exactly like you're saying i mean this kind of like um you know traditional hero's journey is both what makes it successful but i think it also makes it relatable and maybe i'm wrong but i think for most of us if we were going to say hey which kid out of that group am i most people are going to pick gordy even if maybe you weren't gordy you'd probably say you might have been gordy at that age i also think that i I think you're absolutely right and i think also gordy is the most sort of blank canvas of these kids you know he's got the most amount of um what we like to call protagonitis um where it's sort of like you know he's more of the every kid than you know the the kid from across the tracks with the heart of gold or you know the the unhinged kid or you know the funny fat kid um you know he's the he's the the middle of the road he's the straight man essentially for for everybody else and that's usually the person that we project our ourselves emotions onto yeah yeah absolutely he's our in literally our in because he's also you know his older self is the narrator and and the whole thing around like the the quest of you know trying to find yourself trying to to kind of get that courage because he's kind of gotten in his head that he uh he can't pursue his real dream he's not good at the thing that everyone else cares about and no one cares about the thing that that he really wants to do and uh so he needs to kind of get that confidence to do something with it but then i think that you also they set it up in a way that people could also identify with with chris because he's also felt that hopelessness like he's never going to be able to get out and so there's an angle there as well for someone to to look at and say hey i i can really relate to that uh, except for the you know being killed later that might not be the best but the young but the aside young from version. that like we have the young version well and and then you walk through that that story that's being told to us by this writer with the knowledge that chris his best friend who's beside him this whole time, one, does make something of himself because the opening shot of the movie, you're looking at the uh, headline death notice of, uh, you know, Chris having become a lawyer murdered outside of a restaurant. And uh, so he's, he's, made good and the specter of death hangs over him. So, you know, they're looking for a dead kid. There's kind of this dead kid walking beside them the whole time as well. All of which is to say, thematically, the specter of death hangs over every single frame of this movie. It is, it is intense. Like it is the literal death of childhood that these 
that these kids are. I mean, th- this is not subtle. No, it's not subtle. And the number of callouts that are made in the movie uh, of like literally recognizing that this is the end of thing. Isn't this great, but things are ending and like, Oh God. Uh, and it's really more at this point about making choices about what you're going to do, knowing this is coming to an end than anything. Right. Um, uh, maybe I can just do a quick callback here too, because you, you, you called it out, Evan, we've got Richard Dreyfus, uh, as the voice of the narrator. We've talked about the younger actors and kind of the story they go on. Um, what about some of the older folks? I mean, there's, there's a laundry list here of some, some other actors, right? Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, John Cusack, Richard Dreyfus, who played the older characters and i mean we've kind of touched on it Kiefer sutherland as chilling oh boy as ace absolutely absolutely terrifying he is he is every stephen king bad guy ever you put him in it and he's right there like it's just completely terrifying yeah when when he's uh threatening to put the uh cigarette to chris's face uh in that one scene you're like i think he might be willing to do it uh, a thing that i went up reading was actually that river phoenix was the one who was egging him on to be like no no put it right up to my face do it until i actually freak out please because that's what's going to make this shot better uh but yeah like well, respect uh, to river phoenix i i saw like i am surprised that Kiefer sutherland's character um you know didn't have a a body count in this movie, even of just his own friends, because he is full on nut bar uh, going on. So he and seems like he is going to murder everybody, everyone <laughs> around him at all times. Yeah, I I have a, a secret fan theory, which is actually um, you never see Ace come back and get vengeance on the kid because that's that's when he got bit by a vampire and turned into the guy in the Lost Boys, who was also a suicidal or a homicidal maniac, like. Uh, I'm going to put a uh, uh, a theory forward right now. Completely baseless. Just came up with it off the top of my head. The character of uh, Gordy's brother, played by John Cusack, was killed by Ace. In uh, he was run off the road in this Jeep accident <laughs> they had. Oh, all the Ace killed. Ace killed John Cusack. Print it. That set, put that out on Twitter right now. Hot take central for a 40 year old movie. Um, I mean, you know, hey, that's two hot takes that we have here. A lot. We're go, we're, we got hot take central right now. Um, all right. So let's maybe move on and talk about a little bit about how this movie looks. Because, uh, I mean, there's a to your point, Evan, it's it's it, you know, this is nostalgia central. I think there's a certain look and feel uh, to this movie that has a little bit of a, uh, you know, a halo around it at times of I, I think a halo is a really good way of putting it. I think it like it's so the light is so saturated, like to set it in late August, which, you know, aside from Christmas, maybe the most nostalgic time mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like it really like, you know, dog days of summer schools out truly like schools out, but it's about to come back in. So these are the days that you're like, like, Oh, we got to make the most of this. Everything. The light is, you know, golds and oranges and everything just like is, is looks kind of hazy. And especially, especially since uh, I'd read that, they shot it over 60 days, the entire production, but the story itself only takes place over, over two days. So it's like super important that 
it's consistent and it looks the same. And it's almost never that sunny for that long. Uh, in, that time in year. Oregon where they shot yeah. it. <laughs> so it's like, it, it's just crazy, right? Like the, the luck, but, but I think that really added to it. And I also think like the, what I was saying before, like the, when it's set, I wasn't joking to say like, you could kind of pick like a small town anywhere and, and it would look the same. It would have a similar feel to it, except for some very specific things or it's so clearly um, like this part of the world. But it's just, I, I think that's also really helped with the, the, the timelessness of it. Uh, from that perspective, uh, I'll just say yep, too that I, I, nothing says timelessness that like kids just chain smoking cigarettes. <laughs> oh, the fifties! Uh, I, I will say there's, there's a, a number of um, shots in this movie too that I just you know uh, like the the scene as they're walking across the train bridge heading onto the tracks that are going to take them on this journey, uh, like the the the. Uh, flip shot of that as they return back into town across the bridge. Like there's a number of shots that are just, um, I don't know, for me, I thought they were great shots. As you look down the tracks, you know, there's a journey ahead of them. These kids are embarking on it. There's some great uh, scenery, like wide shots as they're moving across it or as they head off across the field, which just gives you a real, um, I don't know. I, I found them pretty delightful just because it was a great capture of the landscape that these kids are traversing through and part of the journey and, um, you know, sense of, of wonder or mystery or whatever that lays ahead of them. Right. Where do these tracks go? What is this journey going to be? I don't know. Let's find out. Well, and that bridge scene as well, if I remember correctly, is almost exactly the halfway point of the movie. So it's it really does sort of like bridge one section to another. Also like this is where things start getting like a little dangerous for them out there in the wilderness, right? Like this is, this is where they almost get run down by a train. And somehow when they get tackled off the, off the side, don't smash their heads open on the rocks on the, on the way down. So lucky kids. Um, but also where they start going off the tracks and going into the, you know, into the swamps and their leeches and, you know, the, the dark night of the soul that they have, uh, you know, holding guns and and waiting for uh wolves to eat them i guess yeah scary noises in the dark um mm. so i i think maybe it's time we take a quick break uh but maybe on the other side i have a question about the bridge scene the train dodge uh so maybe we can get into that on the other side of the break uh and we'll take a quick break and be talking about the bridge scene which i'm going to keep saying in cycles over and over until we come back see you on the other side Okay, we're back and we're going to talk about little kids dodging a train. So this for me is one of the more interesting scenes in the movie. Uh, to Evan's point, this is kind of one of those um, transitional points where danger now kind of sets in and things really amp up. I have to ask, what do each of you think about the, tr the train bridge dodge scene? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start because I, I have two very, very differing opinions on this. One is it brought back every 
amazing feeling I had about that. Seeing that bridge and turn side to side, I was just like, whoa. And that whole thing about being confronted with, do we take the long way around or do we go across and everything that that represents. So I just loved that. I thought that was brilliant. And then as they start to go across and, you know, um, Will Wheaton is turning around, he's listening. I, I had that tension that I had when, again, I was 14. Then when they start running and kind of how it happens, I kind of thought, uh a little bit, but it re I really liked it. Maybe I'd have to put it out there, like nostalgia. It brought back things that I had felt when I was younger. Um, so I'm really interested from from Evan's perspective, like what it was like for you seeing it now, like everything that we're so used to now and not having that kind of like the, the nostalgic uh, tint over. Well, for me, Stand By Me in sort of popular culture or or the snippets that you that you know from the movie or that I knew from the movie for me boiled down to, hey, you want to see a dead body, leeches and the train scene. And those are, and so I was thrilled to finally see the train scene in context. And, you know, I, I like Will Wheaton, like leaning down and listening on the rail. Uh, I was like, okay, cool. Like that's, that's a legit thing to be doing. And I feel like this character would do that because he had seen it in like a comic book, you know, uh, those old like Western, a Western comic movie books. or TV show. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, well, if you listen to the ground, you can hear the hoof beats, you know, kind of thing. Like, all right, cool. Um, and then I was like, okay. I mean, is this being played for laughs or for, or for, for actual genuine terror. I don't know, but it really did. Like when they get tackled off the, off the, the side, um, I really was shocked that people weren't hurt. <laughs> and that's just, that's just me going like, Oh my God. Like if I had written this movie, they would have had broken necks and then they would have had to come back. <laughs> they just, yeah. Their friends trying to drag them out of the wilderness. Right. Yeah. I, I, I will say that I think, um, I'm, very much in favor of the train scene setup. Uh, like to your point, this feels like a real life, like high, high stakes thing that young kids would get into and do this dumb thing of crossing a train bridge. I, I laugh out loud when um, Vern drops the comb, his like one contribution mm -hmm. to the adventure and he drops it and he's like, oh, I dropped it. And everybody's like, who cares? Like you're the only one. I like all of that. And to your point, they're like, hype of the build up to it. I just found the the way it was shot um uh not my favorite because you can kind of tell the train isn't really running that quickly. That it's a little yeah. further from the kids, which I mean I get it. You don't want to run child kid actors <laughs> like over with the train. That's probably a good call. But like there was something about that that took the um the stakes out of it for me where I'm just like okay, like it doesn't feel real to me anymore. And I've kind of, and again, this is me rewatching it. And I, I, I wind up often rewatching these twice, uh, you know, before we have this chat and like the second watching of it, uh, again was like, Oh yeah. But this is where it's so hard to, to separate the nostalgia from the, 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 the perception right now, because you go back and look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, those things were so real when it came out, every effect was so real. Now you watch it and go, okay, so you're lucky if it triggers your original thing, 
But someone who came and looked at it fresh, they would probably say, hey, this is entertaining, but I'm not scared. Like, it's not immersive. I'm at not, least you know. it was a real train. Very, very far away. Like, it's not like a CG train. I, they, I think one of the things that, that was very effective in that build-up section is like seeing down between the the railway um, yeah. ties yeah. and you know like oh okay it's a long fucking way uh, down i get vertigo also, a little and i got vertigo just at that shot looking down yeah, I, get, I get a little like, like oh i'm gonna look away i gotta yeah like that i thought was really effective the other thing that like you're carrying in the back of your mind uh, also is that like the kid was probably the the dead body kid that they're looking for was clipped by a train yep and so like so you've got that kind of hanging in the back of your mind as well which you know adds to uh, to little uh, a bit of that well and maybe that's a good good question here because i think one of the standout scenes for me in the movie is where the kids find ray brower's body the get the dead kid who's mm. been hit by a train for me that's that really is the 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 moment and like the, one of the well-acted scenes of just the any levity of this adventure is gone. Like they've realized this is a real thing that has happened to a real kid. Like, does that scene pay off for both of you? It paid off absolutely for me. Um, it also was a completion of the emotional part of the hero's journey for me because the the whole thing there and as you said chris earlier like you know gordy's just trying to get the courage to be who he wants to be and you know or one could make the argument that he's trying to figure out you know what kind of man he wants to be and what it means to be a man as he transitions from childhood uh and there's a lot of questions about what is masculinity in this film as well and and those sort of very traditional kind of masculine roles of being the all-american football player versus sort of like oh well he just writes stories like what does that even mean i think also like the you know if the, when you ask about when you ask about a payoff is it's changed from when they started out when they started out, it was kind of like, a, well, of course, we had to go and find a body. And they sort of vaguely, you know, explained what's going to be, we, we're going to be famous. So we're going yeah, to we'll get on the TV. We found the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that changes. So like before they actually do that, there, there's this big thing where um, that there's this kind of like the, we we have to find the body. It takes on a different meaning. And, and there's sort of a different sense of, I need to see this body and I need to understand and I think he even says it out loud right like the why did you have to die and it's sort of us also talking to his brother mm-hmm. they're sort of uh, getting that sense of being able to confront that in a way that he probably didn't before so like I, I think there's a piece there was changed for him and it just became I now have to do it in a way that um, maybe he didn't think about or articulate when when they set out set out to do this I think I think it's uh, I think I'm totally in alignment with both of you guys. And I think one of the things that I, I really appreciate, again, just tying it back to the, the writing and some of the changes that that um, Rob Reiner and the writers made was they actually changed this a little bit from the novella where 
um, Gordy was a little indifferent to his brother because his brother's a lot older than he is. I mean, you know, John Cusack to Will Wheaton is a good span in the movie. I think he's supposed to be nine years or something in the, in the novella. And Gordy's kind of like, I don't know. He was just a guy who shared my dinner table. But ever since he died, my parents don't love me. And it's much more about that. I think that's a clever change to make for the movie where if he's more upset about his brother's death, if he was closer to his brother's death, then the 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 emotional um, kind of moment at the end when they find the body makes a lot more sense or is a lot more relatable to the viewer, right? Because you you can understand he missed the person. Now he can have this kind of catharsis or whatever of getting it out finally when he hasn't up till now. And and the only person who was uh, supportive and understood and like, and is now gone. That, yeah. That's very few scenes that they have together. I was like, that is just brilliant. It was such a nice, believable relationship. Uh, so let's not end this part on a on a down note. Let's instead talk about something that's rocking, including Rock and Robin. Uh, the music for this movie is pretty awesome. Am I right? I mean, it is. It is one of the iconic soundtracks of my youth. Um, not that I grew up in the 1950s, and weirdly enough, having not seen this movie until now, the soundtrack to this movie was played a lot in my house uh growing up this and the and the big chill soundtrack really like carry a carry a lot of of nostalgia for me so it was great to see the the songs tied into uh to everything including watching the kids do lollipop with the pop of their fingers and going like oh god when was the last time they washed their hands (laughs) also 12 year old boys so pretty accurate Yeah, also 12 year old that could be a documentary right there yeah uh (laughs) i i think one of the things that's pretty cool too is uh to your point evan like not only did they release the soundtrack they actually re released stand by me like the that theme song the main the name of the movie song um and it actually started charting again uh in the 80s uh you know 25 years or whatever it was after its original release as a result of this what? movie that could happen before TikTok. i know unbelievable <laughs> I, I will say that uh, Stand By Me, uh, the song uh, also gets credit for the name of the movie because they did re- need to rename the movie. Uh, Rob Reiner was basically sitting there looking at the name of the movie. He was like, uh, the body is either a porno or a horror movie, and we're not doing that. Uh, and so, you know, going back through the the, the soundtrack of the, the 50s and early 60s, he was like, okay, this is what this is really about, this friendship between kids, this bond, this growth. So we're going to change it to this so nobody gets confused and think they're going to go see a slasher film. Uh, like, good call. Uh, and also, good yeah, song. Really good call. Good song. Mm-hmm. Great song. Um All right. Well, I think I've got some questions that I still had lingering that I want to ask both of you uh, after I saw this movie. So, all right. Hit us um, up. One, um, what do you think happened to Gordy's brother's hat? Oh, God damn it. That's a really good question. Um, maybe it's, uh, it's under one of those logs, uh, from, from when they play chicken with the logging truck. Michael, what do you think? What do you think Ace did with that? I think he put it in one of those, uh, water drains waiting for some terrible presence or creature Suicider. to yeah <laughs> so it now ties into it and the broader mm-hmm. stephen king pantheon and there's that kind of big lingering question at the end keever sutherland being like i am going to fucking murder yeah. you yeah and then it's like 
And then we went home and <laughs> went know, we to school apart. again and everything and, was fine. And yeah. like, no, Ace is like, this is that dude is like, you have set him up as a man of his word who will murder you. I actually read the book and I couldn't remember it until I, or the, the short story and, until I read this research bit. But in the, in the book, he actually gets his revenge and he pretty brutally beats up, uh, he, he beats up, um, uh, Chris and uh, sorry, not Chris Gordy, uh, in this afterwards, but they don't show that in the, the movie. So he, he gets a pretty good revenge. Well, maybe, maybe it was Ace is like a 60 year old guy who finally knifed Chris Chambers at that restaurant. Oh my God. He's, he's, he's like, just out of the bathroom comes out. And he's like, I told you I'd get you. And like, <laughs> you never knew when it was coming. Oh, wow. Um, can we get a freeze frame of, of that? Uh, death notice at the beginning of the movie. I now I'm so <laughs> you've got curious. sixty year old Ace being carted off in handcuffs. And <laughs> I, you know what? That is the best. That is the 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 best resolution of that. Like revenge is a is a dish best served like moldy. I guess like <laughs> that's great. Yes, that I want it to be that. Um, okay, so. Last question before we go. Uh, is this a movie you think you will come back to? You know, uh, I don't know how soon I'm going to come back to this one. I'm really, really, really glad that I finally watched it. Uh, I understand now why uh, a couple of writing colleagues have said, like, I can't believe that you've never seen this movie before. We thought that your writing was heavily influenced by Stand By Me. And so now I'm like, oh, OK, it, there are a lot of things around that. I can I can see why why they've pointed that out. And I think a lot of the things that have influenced me were influenced by Stand By Me. And so there's a little bit of kind of like um, uh, second degree um, or secondary source. I don't know that I'm going to watch this again till maybe I show it to my kid when he's. 12 or 13. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I totally too. show it to him. Yeah. I totally show it to him. I, I think that um, is that, that's yeah. exactly how I was thinking about it as well. Because like last week we we talked about Amadeus. And Amadeus rewatching it showed me new things as an adult that 12-year-old me did not pick up on because it was sort of like a lot of mature themes going on. This was this was the opposite. This was Rewatching it, it was like it was made for me when I was 14. It was like I was being part, let in on their secret journey and I was part of it. Um, and, it and it was really meaningful at the time. Now watching it, it brought back some of those things. But, you know, it's not, I wouldn't watch it again for that reason. But exactly what you said, it'd be a terrific movie to show to someone that's kind of at that rough stage of their life. I think it could be a, a very meaningful one and, and then have a conversation about it. Couldn't agree with you both more. And on that note, uh, why don't we call it a day? So um, if this has been enjoyable for all of you out there, I'd ask all of you to leave us a light, like a uh, review, uh, subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening. Uh, it helps us out a whole bunch. Uh, if you want to send us any questions, thoughts, feedback, whatever that you've got, uh, you can hit us 
up on, on Twitter at how did you miss this? That's H D Y M T underscore pod uh, with any of your thoughts or questions that you still had. Uh, and in the meantime, we're going to be watching some more movies and coming back to you with some more stuff that some of us has missed until then. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.